Hey, good morning, everybody. It's so good to meet with you online today. I know it's unusual. This has been a crazy year, but uh, we're going to meet like this for one more Sunday, and everybody's online today. So we're so glad that you've joined us either at 9.15 or later on Sunday. Hey, before I get into the message, I just want to share a couple announcements with you. Number one is we are continuing to collect things for Operation Christmas Child and our Thanksgiving baskets. And so there's bins in front of our care center. If you uh, care to drop by this week and deliver those things, you can do that. Our, our building will open again uh, probably the middle of this week, and so you can also pick up um, extra shoeboxes and things. This Saturday will be the distribution for those Thanksgiving baskets, and thank you so much for everybody and all the generosity you've shown uh, to our community and to really the kids around the world. I also want to say thank you for your generosity to our staff, uh, including myself and my wife, Julie. Uh, there's been an outpouring of prayers this week for us. As uh, you guys know, we've had about a dozen people come down with covid including five of our staff and a couple staff spouses. And so we've all had a, a varying symptoms and fevers and coughs and uh, flu-like symptoms, upset stomach. And uh, this is the best I've felt in two weeks. So I'm actually pretty grateful for God getting me to this point. And most of the staff are doing very well. And a couple are still struggling. So keep praying for our church to recover. We've fumigated the building. We've deep cleaned everything. We will be ready for worship again next Sunday. So we look forward to you. If you feel comfortable coming back, uh, we look forward to worshiping with you in person uh, next Sunday. If not, just continue to join us online um, as long as you feel comfortable with that. Also, before we dive in the message, I want to ask you to be in prayer for two things. We just have come through a very um, heated political season, and I'm going to ask you to join me in praying for two things in, in particular. Number one is that we would pray that as a nation, uh, that, that this election would be validated and that every vote, every legitimate vote counts. And I know there's questions about that and debates about that, but we owe it to ourselves to make sure that that the votes are done right. And then secondly, uh, once that is decided and all the officials that are voted in are voted in, that we get behind them in our prayers and with our honor, as Scripture tells us to. And that we can put all this rancor behind us and get on with what God has in store for this country. Those two things, fair election and honoring those leaders that are duly elected. Let's pray that those two things happen in our country because that would be very unifying if that were true. Now, last week I shared with you the first part of a message, a message called Words That Matter. And at the end of chapter three in uh, Peter's letter, he moves from just showing our faith through action to actually speaking words. And I shared with you the very first principle about how our, our words give life. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, I shared this, this verse, Proverbs 18, 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, meaning that we have the ability to speak life through the words that come out of our mouths. And so Peter tells us, in his letter, and we looked at this last week, that when people revile us and curse us and insult us, that we are to respond with a blessing. And we do that so we may obtain a blessing. God wants to bless us, and he doesn't want us to behave like the world. He doesn't want us just to suck it up and tough it out. He wants us to actually do the very, the very contrary thing that most people would think. And I shared with you the story of Jimmy and how God had used him to, to be a blessing to a man who had been very uh, rude to him, and how God actually had blessed Jimmy in, a, in amazing ways because he had obeyed this scripture. Well, I want to finish that message by going into the last two things that Peter talks about in that third chapter. And so if you have a Bible, I'm going to pick up with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 17. Now, who is there to harm you 
if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." The second way we can speak life with our mouths is that when you're questioned by critics, explain your hope. He says, give a reason or defense for the hope that you have. See, Peter says you may suffer for following Jesus. And if you do so, you'll be blessed for that as well. But he says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Some Bibles say, sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. And what that means is make sure that at the throne of your heart, Jesus is reigning there because if he's reigning there, you can weather all kinds of circumstances and people will actually look at you and wonder where in the world that hope comes from. What what stabilizes you in the midst of chaos? What carries you through the storm? And, you know, in 2020, probably as much as any time that I can remember, it has been a year where we've needed hope. I mean, this thing has drug on so long and there were so many things that just have called us to endure and put up and tolerate and isolate and do all these things for so long. And yet as believers, hopefully we've not lost the hope because hope is what carries us forward. It's one of those great things, you know, faith, hope, and love. And Peter, of all the apostles, is someone who always emphasizes the hope that we have in the Lord. You know, this has been a trying year, and I love what, what Corey Tenboom, she was a survivor of the Holocaust. Now, we haven't gone through anything even remotely close to a Holocaust this year. But even she, coming out of that very trying period, says this, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. I love that because sometimes we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we know who our conductor is and we know that there will be hope that'll get us through this. We're going to get through COVID. It's been hard and some of us have experienced it in ways we hope not to experience it, but you know, we're getting over it and we as a nation will get over it and we'll get on just like we have with every other illness that has um, stricken our nation. It's amazing what hope can do. But hope isn't just wishful thinking. Hope is anchored in a person. You know, I think of sports teams and how they have hope. For example, there are certain teams and, and they have a quarterback that you just know that if the team is down by a, a score with a minute left, if that quarterback gets the ball in his hands, there's a likelihood that he's going to drive the team down for the winning field goal or score. They just know that. It could be Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers or Russell Wilson or, or a player like that. You just know because they've proven it time and time again. That's the key. They've, they've shown they can do it. And when you trust someone who's shown they come through again and again, that's where hope is found. And the reason we as believers have hope isn't just because we, we wishfully think things are just going to turn out well. It's because of who Jesus is. And if you're like me, I've seen God come through so many times, uh, sometimes at the last minute, but he opens a door. He provides a check in the mail. He answers a prayer. He heals a disease. He restores a relationship. He does something that's 
totally godlike. I mean, God shows up and shows off. And because he's done it so many times, I just have hope. And hopefully you do too. We should have hope more than anybody else. And so when people see that hope in us, they're going to wonder, why? Why do you have that kind of hope? And Peter says, make sure you have a defense for that. Have a reason for it. It's a Greek word, apologia. From, uh, it's where we get this study of apologetics, uh, the defense of our faith. And he says we need to have reasons for why we believe. And I don't know what you would say if someone would ask you about the hope that you have, but I know that Peter remembered a time in his life when he didn't have an answer. When people asked him about his relationship with Jesus and he denied him three times in one evening. And so he tells us, hey, don't do that. Don't be like I was. Know why you believe. And I want to share with you some of the reasons I have such great hope. And these are just simple things, but they keep me grounded in my faith. They're just very simple. Here, here's three of them. First of all, I know where I've come from. I know where I came from. I, I love that about our faith because there's only two really uh, uh, fair options of how you got here. Either accidental forces of nature and evolution created you or there was a supreme being who designed you and placed you on this stage we call earth. It's really, those are the only two logical explanations for how we got here. And I love the fact that the Bible says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made, that every fiber of my body, every uh, nerve, every ligament, every muscle, every blood vessel, all are woven together in such a phenomenal way that allows this body to function, to bounce back from illness, to, to lift things, to, to do things. This was, this was designed. I mean, you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, this is no accident. You know, God made us. And, and I love the fact that, that I know that I'm made by a creator God in his image because it gives me identity. It, it, it gives me value. It gives me self-esteem. See, if you just took the chemical value of the human body, you know, nitrogen and oxygen and carbon and things like that. It's less than $1,000 worth of chemicals. But the human body is priceless because of its creator. Think of a painting. You can look at a painting and it's not the canvas that gives it its value. It's not the quality of the paint on the canvas that gives the value or the brushes that were used. What makes a painting so precious is that little name, Rembrandt, or Van Gogh, or Picasso, you know, etched in that painting. It's the artist. That's what gives it the value. And you and I have value not because of the chemical makeup of these bodies, but because of the artist that has made us. A creator God has made us. I have hope because I know where I came from. Second reason I have hope is because I know why I'm here. I know why I'm here. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, begins with these words, it's not about you. And that's a, that's a rude awakening when we finally realize life isn't all about us. The world doesn't revolve around us. It's not all about us and what we accumulate and what we acquire and what we obtain and accomplish. And it's, it's bigger than that. In fact, if you live selfishly for, for just your own goals, you'll be a pretty pathetic person. But once you come to know Jesus, you not only enter into a relationship with him, you adopt his mission. And his mission is to love this world. I mean, he so loved the world that he gave his life for it. And so he calls us as believers to follow him and to give ourselves to this world. A friend of mine 
put on their uh, Facebook page this week a quote by Pope Francis. It says this, Rivers do not drink their own water. Trees do not eat their own fruit. The sun does not shine on itself and flowers do not spread their fragrance for themselves. Living for others is a rule of nature. Life is good when you are happy, but much better when others are happy because of you. I love that. Your life is good when you're happy, but much better when others are happy because of you. That's what Jesus does. He makes us selfless so that we now have a purpose. I know why I'm here. I have a reason for living. It's not just to get through this life and get as as much happiness for myself as I can. It's to bring joy to my Father in heaven. And in so doing, I receive great joy. And so uh, I have hope because I know why I'm here. And I have hope because I know where I'm going. If we are indeed products of evolution, then once we die, it's all over. We, we pull the plug, it's done. But deep within us, in the human soul, is this longing for something better, something beyond the grave. Uh, the Bible actually says that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And so virtually everybody, when they face death, hope that there's something beyond the grave. Or if they're really struggling through this life, Look forward to a place where there's no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow. This place called heaven. Not only that, we look forward to a place where we'll be reunited with our loved ones. And the Bible says that if you trust in Jesus, he will bring you into his father's house. <laughs> it's such a beautiful thing to know that when I leave this earth, no matter what happens, if I would die of a disease, if COVID would even take my life, I'm not afraid because I know where I'm going and I can live life with confidence and joy and purpose because I know where I'm going after I leave this earth. Hey, I don't know what your reasons are for the hope that you have. You might look at the miracles God has done in your own life, the prayers that he's answered on your behalf. You may look at the testimonies of people whose lives have been dramatically changed. Whatever it is, take some time Identify the reasons for the hope that you have because there are people in your life and it could be a coworker, it could be your kids, it could be your neighbor, it could be a friend who's asking you the reason for the hope that you have and be ready to answer when they ask. And Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect. There's one other piece to this that I'd like to share with you as Peter closes out this third chapter. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter says when called by the gospel, we have one other way we can speak life and that is to pledge our allegiance to Jesus as Lord. We're going to get to what baptism means and how we make a pledge in baptism. But he starts off here just emphasizing the fact that Jesus died on the cross, uh, rose from the dead, and then he, he preached to the spirits in prison, then ascended up to heaven to the right hand of God above all angels, authorities, and powers. 
And I love the fact that in these last two chapters, as Peter's talking about uh, being subject to authority and the different authorities in our lives, he now makes it very clear, there's no authority higher than Jesus. There's no authority higher than him. No angelic authority. And by the way, these words, angels, authorities, and powers are all speaking of supernatural beings. None of them are greater than Jesus. And Peter talks about Jesus proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Now, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to share with you something. This is a whole kind of rabbit trail, and people often skip this passage of Scripture because it's kind of mysterious. But I want to share with you what I believe is, is an understanding that makes sense of this passage. Back in Genesis 6, when mankind was, was multiplying, there's a statement in there that the sons of God took to themselves the daughters of men. And in ancient Jewish scholarship, they believe that to be a supernatural event. That the sons of God, which is a term in the Old Testament often used of spiritual beings. You have the son of God, Jesus Christ. But the son of God, or the sons of God, are the angelic beings. And these, some angelic beings took to themselves the daughters of men. It was a great violation of angels and humans. It, it was so bad that they created a mutant race of people known as the Nephilim. Now, the Bible doesn't say in Genesis 6 what happened next to those um, sons of God, those angelic supernatural beings. It, it starts to go into the flood story. But I would tell you that if you go back one chapter in Genesis 5, we learn about a man named Enoch. Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah. And one of the unusual things about Enoch was he never died. In fact, it says he walked with God 300 years. Then God took him away, and he was no more. And while that may have been the last we heard of Enoch, there actually is a book written called the Book of Enoch. And it's one of those books that was written during the intertestamental period, supposedly of ancient Jewish um, uh, oral traditions, passed on, um, but this book never made it into the canon of Scripture. And so it became part of a, a group of books called the Pseudepigrapha. And there were questions about the authorship of it, and of course, Enoch was long dead by that time. But the, the book of Enoch was revered by many church fathers, and even Peter and Jude, who wrote two letters of the New Testament, that that book had some credibility to it. And what the first chapters of the book of Enoch are all about is this event back in Genesis 6 of the sin of these angels, which are called the watchers, and how they violated their, their place by mingling in with humans. It also goes on to talk about their fate, and Peter actually describes their fate, and he draws upon the book of Enoch. Scholars all agree that, that Peter, in quoting this passage in, in, in 2 Peter, actually draws from this book of Enoch. He says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. I mean, Peter's talking about the events. Uh, right before the flood with this violation, the sins of these angels, followed up by the, the flood and God rescuing a small portion of humanity. 
And I'm, I'm sharing all this just to point out the fact that what Peter seems to be uh, drawing out for us is the fact that here was a group of high-level spiritual beings who did not submit to God's authority and were sent to this gloomy place, this prison, awaiting their final doom. And yet there was one family, a man named Noah, his sons and their wives, and they were all saved through the flood simply because they submitted to the authority in their lives. And Peter goes on to say to the readers and to people like you and me that, that being on the ark is kind of like being baptized. And not that baptism removes dirt from the body, but what it does, it's, it's, a, it's a pledge of a good conscience toward God. It's a person's pledge of allegiance or loyalty to Jesus Christ as Lord. We know there's no magic in our baptistry water. It's not holy water. It doesn't do anything other than get you wet. The power comes when it's joined with the surrender of the heart. When a person confesses with their mouth their faith in the Lord Jesus, as it says in Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's this profession of our faith. We believe that Jesus died. We believe he was buried. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe it so much that we're going to enact it with our body. And so a human body then is buried in water and raised, as scripture says, to walk in newness of life. Baptism saves you, but it's not the water that saves you. It's the pledge. It's the commitment. It's the surrender of the life to Jesus Christ. And it's like getting on the ark that you'll be saved from the waters of judgment. You know, what's really been exciting the last several weeks. I've had people tell me about their interest in being baptized. There was a dad in our church who one Sunday went home and he texted me and said, I've just baptized my wife and two daughters in our bathtub. Uh, just last week, another woman in our church said she has a friend who wants to be baptized, but their church isn't doing baptisms right now. And so she asked me for some guidance how she, what, what to say during a baptism because she was going to baptize her friend in her bathtub. I've had five other people in the last couple of weeks come to me saying, hey, we are ready to get baptized. I mean, this is a time when, when it is ideal to give your life to Jesus Christ, to make sure that he is the authority, he is the one on the throne of your life because he's above every other power. There's no power higher than Jesus and we want to put ourselves under him in surrender and there's no better picture of surrender than to allow someone just to lay you as if you are dead in a pool of water and then raise you up to symbolize that you no longer live for yourself but you are living for Jesus. If you've ever thought about being baptized, and when I talk about this, as a believer, I grew up in a church where my parents had me sprinkled when I was a baby. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just a little, little baby at the time. But there came a point in my life when I was 19 years of age where I said, you know what, I am ready to make my own decision. And it was a beautiful time in my life where I actually confessed Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I was baptized. And I would invite you to do the same thing. If you've never had that privilege, that, that honor to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ, I encourage you. There's an email address we're going to put on the screen here. It just says disciple at yestoguy.org. If you're interested in being baptized or would like information about what that means, we have a booklet we'd love to send you 
called Common Questions About Baptism that might help you process through this. And uh, in the coming weeks, you're going to see people baptized here at the church. Uh, oftentimes, we'll have one big Sunday where we'll baptize dozens of people. But because of COVID, we probably will not be able to do something like that for some time. But we're going to continue to allow you the opportunity to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Let your mouth speak life. Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Speak of the hope that, that you have because of Jesus reigning in you. And remember, when you're cursed and reviled and spoken evil of, give a blessing. Because these mouths God has given us are for life, not death. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives. And I thank you, Lord, that in the midst of this crazy week for so many of us, that we see you bringing us through and bringing good things. And Father, it feels so good to be able to proclaim Jesus once again. And I pray, Lord, whether whether we are individual preachers or just believers, that we would use our mouths for you, that you would be glorified through the words that come out, that people would actually hear, hear the voice of Jesus through our voices. We ask in his name, amen, amen. God bless you. See you next week, either online or right back here in person. Have an awesome week.